0: Welcome back. It's Swing Pass. Week four is in the books. Another big slate of games around the AUDL. Austin goes 0-2 on their arduous road trip in the South, losing to Carolina and Atlanta on back-to-back days. Philadelphia goes 2-0 up in Canada to write their season, getting back to 2-3. New York and Carolina are still undefeated in 2022 at 4-0 each. Madison Radicals also improved to 3-0 in 2022. We've got a special guest on the podcast today. Big week as we round towards the end of May here and the first full month of the new season. Daniel, where should we start? I think we got to
1: start with Austin, right? I mean, heading into the weekend, they were kind of the headlining team playing against Carolina on Friday night and then taking on the hustle on Saturday night. This was, I don't want to say the first real test for them because the, the Dallas matchups early on were a test in that we suspected Austin could win those games, but it still was, you know, this, this. Tight Austin-Dallas historic rivalry that only started recently to shift, but Austin put that to bed, you know, in their first two matchups. This was going to be, okay, now that they're done with Dallas, can they take on the very top of the South Division, and where do they rank in terms of the
0: league's top teams? And unfortunately for the Saul, despite two pretty impressive performances on the road and missing a couple of key defensive pieces, they dropped both games uh, in Carolina on Friday night and then in Atlanta on Saturday. Um, Austin went up big on Carolina on Friday night. They had a 7-3 lead at one point in the first quarter. Handful of breaks right out of the gate. They really seemed to get in Carolina's O-line's head um i thought their offense soul's offense looked really good to start that game actually throughout both games i thought their offense acquitted itself very well mm-hmm. against two top top 4 defenses top 3 defenses you know yeah uh i i thought again the soul played really well it just it didn't quite work out it felt like like it it's hard to almost diagnose what exactly went wrong other than it felt like Carolina and Atlanta both got to play the games that they wanted to. Despite Austin executing well and making some great plays, Evan Swiatek played great all weekend. Jake Radak was a great handler for them. Mark Evans seems to be a legit presence in this league in his first season. But, it, you know, Carolina's defense kind of won it in the fourth quarter with that huge Justin Allen Uh Callahan interception to just sort of Mm -hmm. break open the game and really drive a dagger into the soul. Um, And then on Saturday it was, you know, the, the Huck and highlight show for the home team hustle. They were just connecting. It felt like every single deep shot. Austin Taylor Mm -hmm. was in rhythm all night. Bobby lay had a good debut for them. John Stubbs looks like an all AUDL player when he plays for them. You know, it, it felt like the soul had trouble establishing their identity against these very established teams.
1: It's hard, right? <laughs> Cause Austin, like we said, they, they didn't really play poorly. I just no. think Carolina and Atlanta asserted themselves as on this other level than Austin, even though both games were extremely tight, you know, late into the, or at least halfway through the fourth quarter, For a good three and a half quarters, it felt like the game could go either way. But yeah, the way Austin started against Carolina, getting off to that huge lead, I I don't know about you. You kind of suspected that Carolina was going to do the thing that they always do. And even if they slow start, they end up correcting things. And soon enough, their offense is just a well-oiled machine and it's fine. But it did feel like a pretty, (laughs) pretty sizable lead for Austin. Four goals. You know, up seven three in the first quarter, ultimately ending the quarter up seven four.
0: But yeah. Evan Swiatek called out a jump ball over Terrence Mitchell. <laughs> right, <in that laughs> they were feeling good. Like that's how much they yeah. were feeling it. They were ready to just go make a play in open space in the air against Terrence freaking Mitchell. You know, <laughs> they like, they were great, and their D line was capitalizing. Every
1: single time early on, right? Like they had three breaks in that opening quarter. I think before the game last week on our preview episode, you asked me how many breaks I thought it would take for Austin to win this game. And I, I threw out five as a number. So for them to get three in the opening quarter alone, I they had to be feeling good, right? And I, I was kind of feeling good for them. They They did ultimately end up with five breaks, but it kind of just goes to show... Even that wasn't enough. And it was that, that late, you know, like you said, Justin, Justin Allen, Callahan, but just the, the identity of this Flyers offense to really never let up and figure things out as they go. This, this offense was sort of a pieced together O line that hadn't all played together a ton. I mean, they, they, they got some reps against Tampa last week, but Grayson Sander was his first time in the lineup, Alex Davis, Dylan Hawkins. Trevor Lynch? These are not the O-line name. staples. Say Trevor
0: Lynch's name. <laughs> he had a great game.
1: <laughs> yeah, but these are not the O-line staples we saw from a season ago. It just never seems to matter who Carolina is throwing out there.
0: Elijah Long I mean, played
1: a good amount of O-points. Who?
0: I think we should maybe just rewind like half a step and who they throw out there, right? Like, it's it's that notion of and we've talked about this ad nauseum carolina's depth like other teams yeah you can say who they throw out there like it's it's the the o prime line or something it's it's you know the the alternate lineup or something this isn't an alternate lineup that the flyers threw out. you know their backfield was still guccio hannes and saul yannick they still had jacob fairfax who by the way had an amazing game on friday came up with a big block in the first quarter to earn the disc back when it looked like Austin might take an even bigger lead. Um, he made plays throughout. I thought he really stepped up with the absences of Henry Fisher and Eric Taylor and Anders Jungst on the O-line. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and again, like the, the players that are filling in are Alex Davis, the fastest man and in ultimate in the reigning offensive player of the year. Trevor Lynch, a Callahan nominee in college, Dylan Hawkins, uh, very high rated prospect and a really good looking rookie here in the beginning part of the season Grayson Sanner who hasn't played much offense for this Carolina team but when he's spot played for them in various roles I've always really liked him he's always he's a gamer he good. he's quick he's good with the disc he he can again as you sort of saw he can slot in a lot of different places he's He's another one of their players, like an Elijah Long or a Noah Saul where they can just sort of spell wherever they need to. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's just helpful. The other guys, guys. the other guys, even when they're missing top line talent, are still incredible, as you saw. Um, Yeah. And when you look at the numbers for this game, like you were saying, I think five breaks felt like the right number, but Carolina got six. You know. But other than that, Austin kind of excelled in most areas, you know, they had a higher red zone efficiency than Carolina, they were completing more passes, they had four more turnovers, and that was basically it for the game. I mean, it was a three goal game, and they had four additional turnovers. So you make three more mistakes than the Flyers and you lose, you know, like that's, that's the kind of margins that it is playing against the reigning champs, you
1: know. Yeah, yeah, and it's that in in every game, right? Like the first game Carolina played against Atlanta this year, I think the turnover margin was only one or two, but yeah, well, it's enough. New and York Carolina in the previous, championship
0: game, New York in the championship. Yeah, New York they in the, got right. Two they had a great, great game. opportunities.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it's you look at Carolina and what they've done the past two seasons, or dating back to the start of last season, they haven't had more than twenty turnovers in any game dating back to the start of 2021 yet the soul just I I just don't know because Carolina it's not just about that 20 turnover mark but they're down around 10 to 15 turnovers consistently like game in game out they are just extremely good at limiting these turnovers and like we've established it doesn't even matter who they're missing on offense like this is a a team-wide identity to limit these turnovers and the soul are more, they're a little newer to limiting turnovers. This year, they've been great, limiting turnovers to fewer than 20 in every single game they've played this season. Last year, they only were under 20 in three games all year. So it was a lot more up and down in consistency last season. They've taken a huge step this year. I just don't know if, like, if they're if they're hitting in the 15 to 20 mark, I just don't know if that's enough to compete consistently with Carolina with Atlanta and then if they somehow move past them to compete with DC and New York like this top tier of teams they really just do not turn the disc over and that is often the difference in these games
0: and it really almost came down to two points in the third quarter for Austin you know it was that it was that back-to-back break sequence for Carolina where yeah yeah. rookies or he's not a rookie I, I think of him because he only played in a couple games last year but yeah, yeah he's madaraju, playing more this year siraj madaraju got a point block and they carolina immediately converted it to bloodworth and then on the ensuing possession i believe on like the first swing throw for austin they missed evan swiatek and the flyers just picked up and immediately put it in for a second straight break and that's sort of I think fully reversed the momentum that Austin had in the beginning, but then relinquished to the flyers after that point, obviously the, the Justin Allen Callahan was the, that was the dagger. triple exclamation yeah. point. But it, I think <laughs> no, the game I, really I hinged on those back-to-back breaks, starting with Madaraju's point
1: block. That's sort of what put Austin in a bit of a hole. Whereas First quarter, obviously, they got off to a great start. And then second quarter was kind of the exact opposite. Like Carolina just slowly earned those breaks back. But yes, it was that sequence that put the soul back on their heels. And when Carolina's in the driver's seat, you don't really see them mess up leads anytime. I mean, even dating back to last season, there was the New York game that went to double overtime in, in classic Carolina, New York fashion, where Carolina was kind of in the driver's seat and New York fought back. But aside from that one, not many games stick out to me as games that the Flyers had a lead in, but then surrendered late in the game. I think they're very good at playing with the lead. And a lot of that hinges on their backfield of Saul Yannick and Matt gucho who were fantastic. And I, like, as long as those two are active, it, it feels like the cutting core can be Whatever, and they'll make it work. Just the like, ability yeah, to lean on not, those guys to kill time it's not just whatever. and just complete a bunch of passes.
0: <laughs> what? Oh, I was just saying, it's not just whatever. <laughs> I mean, we. Could, I mean, it, it is. It is whatever. It, so, I, it still is Fairfax
1: and AD. And yes. But you you don't think they could throw a guy like like put Justin Allen on the O-line for a game as Cutter and and
0: not have the same success that they've been having? No, not quite. I think that they still have a fantastic receiving core, even with their B and C options, as they showed. You know, Austin again, Austin played well. And I think the absences of Mick Walter, Elliot Moore, and Zach Slayton really, really hurt them this week. Particularly Walter. The amount of hucks that Carolina and Atlanta completed against them in back-to-back nights, it it really felt like Austin was missing its big man. And you see them out there with with Pollock on
1: defense. And even though he is just as big, if not bigger, than Mick Walter, Mick Walter kind of has that that sixth sense, you know, defensive help mindset that seems to put him in the right place at the right times. Whereas I think Pollock was a lot more matchup based in these games, which allowed Carolina and Atlanta to either run him with a a smaller, quicker cutter, or just keep the disc out of his general area. So I agree. I think if they can get Mick Walter back, that's going to help a ton. This Austin team has been susceptible to Hucks this year, which that i it feels like that could be one of their few weaknesses if you have to point to a specific spot
0: we'll get into it as we get into the Atlanta game next but in in both games this weekend carolina and atlanta completed 28 of 34 hucks against the soul that is just <laughs> surrendering so many deep shots it's so hard i think to get anything going defensively when you know you're constantly having to worry about the shots over the top. You can't kind of put a roof on it and let everything play out in front of you.
1: Yeah, they can be demoralizing too. just the amount of big plays that both these teams put together, especially Atlanta, where it just felt like that was their go to on every possession, you know, get the disc to Austin Taylor, Bobby Lay or John Stubbs and let them shoot and it'll probably work. But it's the same thing it's with to Yannick
0: too. He was getting it on the the far side and then was like shooting these rockets across field in the space for Lynch or AD or whoever was open. Uh, yeah. It just felt like they had that range. Um, I did want to, I did want to take a small portion of this pod to just give uh enshrinement of the Justin Allen layout Callahan. Uh, I think <laughs> Please I do. can speak for you too at, Justin Allen is, I think, one of those sort of like archetype highlight players who, if you've been in Ultimate Media or anything, you probably started somewhere around the Justin Allen Callahan video. And personally, he's always been like one of my favorite players to watch. But um, ever since he had his knee injury a couple years ago and watching him readapt his role in this Carolina team has been Really amazing, I think, is just a fan and a spectator of the sport. You know, from him going from one of the first players ever 50-50 season in this uh, league, of uh, 50 assists, 50 goals in his first year at the Flyers, you know, he was like the franchise's first signing. It's it's kind of hard to remember this this many years later, but, you know, J.A. has been the face of this franchise and and it's, he hasn't quite had the explosiveness since coming back from that knee injury but he's shown flashes of it last year he played similarly a great sort of spark plug role getting some big interceptions doing his big leg flare in the air skies and stuff but watching him get that layout Callahan and then just erupt and chest bump every Flyers player with it felt like in a stadium radius around him and just pointing and shouting at everybody that was cool man that was just one of those moments where like I was just grinning
1: Yeah, I love that he continues to make these plays just sporadically, you know, he's not getting nearly the same amount of playing time he did to start his career, but still that useful spark plug, like you said, Justin Allen's Callahan video, by the way, that's like the one piece of Ultimate Media I consumed prior to 2018, and I consumed it too many times to count. It was, it's still
0: doing flick pulls. (laughs)
1: <laughs> i i did not because i was like i am never gonna be able to flick pull like this guy i'm never gonna be able to lay out like this guy let me just watch this and appreciate this incredible athlete
0: Like i understand why they have other people pulling now like eric taylor is one of the best pullers in the world but <laughs> i miss my justin allen flick pulls and we need more flick pullers in the league i feel like and not we just do. like yeah. not just not for enough. rollers, like everyone does it for rollers and stuff. He used to do legit pull full field yes. with flicks. Like, I love that. And yeah. that's why he did I that know. crazy uh, buzzer beater the other year to goose in 2018 where he had the full <laughs> right. field flick huck at the buzzer. Been practicing <laughs> right. his whole life for it. Uh yeah. anyways, we should get on to the game of the week, uh, Austin at Atlanta on Saturday night. Atlanta coming away with the 26 to 21 win over the Saul. Saul again putting up a competitive first three quarters and then the Saul, or the hustle, excuse me, um, just sort of closing out in the fourth, uh, outscoring the Saul 8 to 4 in the final frame. Uh, Again, it felt like Austin, against any other team, that performance would get them a W, and against an Mm -hmm. Atlanta team that only turned it over 11 times while completing 14 hooks, and getting eight defensive breaks, Atlanta just played better.
1: Yeah, and they they just didn't give the soul many opportunities at all to fight back. You know, two of six break opportunities for Austin. Obviously, you know, you want to convert more than two, but when you only have six opportunities, it's just, they're very hard to come by, and, and you kind of knew that coming into this weekend with both Carolina and, and Atlanta, the soul have to take better advantage of those opportunities. And you mentioned Elliot Moore was missing, Mick Walter, some other guys on defense. They could definitely be a help in the future for upping that break percentage. But generally, like you said, it, it wasn't that Austin played so poorly. I, I mean, I just, I think Atlanta was... They just they just like got hot early and then stayed hot the whole game. Austin Taylor had what, 5 or 6 assists in the first half and then uh, you know, mirrored that in the second. Like he never he never let up and having him, Stubbs and Lay anchoring that O-line with with Christian Olsen by the way, who led the team in completions,
0: playing amazing. I think we got
1: to Yeah, we got to we got to talk about this this offense generally because Coming into this game, you know, dating back to at least halfway through the 2021 season, it was Austin Taylor's backfield. And there was little, like, very little question about that. He was the quarterback for this offense. Everything was going to run through him. He was going to be generating the deep shots. He was going to be generating all the offensive motion from the backfield. But that's not how he spent the majority of his career up until, you know, that halfway point of last season. So now we get a version of Austin Taylor where he's an initiating cutter. They've got lay and Olson holding down the backfield with stubs mixing in here and there that allowed Austin Taylor to just become this deadly striker where continuation huck opportunities I think are often easier than just standstill hucks from the backfield and to get Austin Taylor moving and then allow a guy like Matt Smith who went off to the fullest extent against Austin, multiple highlight reel skies, having guys like him and Carl Ekwartzel and Elijah Jaime downfield cutting for those continuation hucks from an initiating Austin Taylor. I didn't-I didn't think Austin Taylor could level up from his MVP caliber season a year ago, but seeing him back in this role with the pieces currently around him, just phenomenal and extremely difficult for any defense to stop
0: when well, I think you hit the nail on the head with making him a motion passer again because I feel like you were saying that the weight or the the, um, the amount of volume that he had to take on in that hustle backfield towards the end of 2021 you could see it in the New York playoff game where he he kind of became mm-hmm. a pocket passer and obviously he has the power throws to do well in that atmosphere it's not like he had a bad playoff game but It limited, I think, the balance attack of the hustle offense. And now that you can move him around the field a bit, it's impossible to know where those hucks are going to come from. If you watch the highlights of some of his huck throws, he is powering his hucks underneath the mark. Like he is breaking the mark with a 70-yard backhand. Like that, There there are not many players in the league who are doing that. I don't want to give a number, but it is... Very, very elite company to be doing those kinds of things, and his his little shimmy right now that he's got. He <laughs> his, I love it. I love it's his like shimmy. It's a forced you, move, man. He's just you, you know he's the looking mark. for the deep throw. It's, yeah, it's so hard not so to well. bite on, given that he plays at such a frenetic pace. And now that they've unlocked him from the backfield and pushed him upfield, and you now have to worry about him as a cutter when he does all those quick twitch movements. You have to you have to honor them. Like he, his game is becoming so complete that all the little feints and dekes that he does aren't just flare moves. They're, they're part of the arsenal. And you could see that on full display in the game of the week.
1: You talk about him like moving around physically and that making it difficult for a defense to just zero in on where the Hucks are going to come from and and make them more predictable. Like it's, it's very difficult to (laughs) keep track of him when he's on the move But also, they've added Bobby Lay and John Stubbs to the O-line. So now, instead of just the one guy doing all the hucking, which they had last year, they've got three options. One of them is just running around recklessly, wherever he wants, on the field. Stubbs kind of rotates between the backfield and upfield. They just have a a very difficult system for defenses to stop at this point, when all three of these throwers are clicking, and, and they absolutely were against Austin, 14 of 17 hucks. That feels like maybe not the floor, but I I don't know. I could see them completing 10 plus 10 plus hucks on every game from here on
0: out. Well, we shouldn't go any further without getting to our special interview guest for this episode. Uh, Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back with Atlanta Hustles, Matt Smith. And a big warm welcome to the Swing Pass pod today for the Atlanta Hustles' Matt Smith. You're number two now all time in goals, I believe. you number two, Matt?
2: Yeah, number two. Only about you know, 200 goals behind uh, Cam Brock. <laughs> but holding steady at number two. On your way. <laughs> Uh, big,
0: big win for you guys this past weekend over Austin at home. That was a huge opportunity for a tiebreaker for you guys with only two playoff spots in the South. Can you sort of walk us through uh, what it was like preparing for this matchup? What your coaches had you guys doing to prepare for this sort of renewed and more talented Soul team that you guys haven't faced since 2019?
2: Yeah, absolutely. You know, obviously, we knew it was a big game going in, you know, anybody who's played in the league for a while knows the importance of every single game in a 12 game season. So um, it was a little tricky because we had two bye weeks before Austin, uh, and we didn't actually have formal team activities during that time. Uh, But what we really did, uh, we got down on our film sessions in a way that we really haven't before uh, that I think was very helpful. The week leading up to it, you know, we uh, we had a pretty good idea of what Austin was going to do. Um, you know, credit to them, they they had an identity, which is I think something that we are, uh, aside from the long ball, still you know long ball and zone, but you know we're we're still trying to fine tune that identity. Um, Austin kind of already had it, uh, and so for better or for worse, we saw a lot of that on film, and you know we're able to prepare for that, uh, and then just physically. You know we are we're a good mix, but I would say we have a few uh, few guys on the older end um, who maybe prefer having a couple weeks off uh, physically and just getting to focus and prepare mentally uh, for the battle with austin, which it which it really was. it was it was a battle the whole way through. What I, you don't
1: have to get too specific if you don't want to, but you can. What did you guys identify as their main identity and what were the steps you guys focused on as a team to try and stop what they wanted to do?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think this is giving too much away. You know, anybody can go and look at the stats um, and I encourage them to do so because the stats are pretty cool. Um, But mainly, you know, on offense, you could tell that they ran pretty heavily through, uh, you know, their top three guys. Uh, with Radak, Ytech, and Henke. Um, a lot of the offense went through that. You know, I think one of the points that our coach brought up was uh, in the first couple games, Valsaraj was averaging, uh, I want to say 0.4 touches per possession um, or something along those lines. And, you know, for reference, he told mm-hmm. us, you know, in our Carolina game, uh, Eli Jaime was actually the lowest at, you know, one, uh, like one touch a game or one, one touch of possession. So, you know, that kind of gave us a a reference of like how they utilize their offense. Um, I think he, I think Balceraj might've actually led an assist uh, in our game, which, um, you know, that, that was like, it's kind of like in basketball, right? Like if you're going to leave someone uh, open to take the three, we wanted to kind of take it away and put it in the hands of their other players. He did great. Honestly, their, their other players did great. Uh, but I think it made them uncomfortable and you know, wasn't a part of uh probably what they they were expecting was was us to just focus so much on their heavy hitters. So That's it sounds like you really guys
0: had it sounds like you guys had some of the best preparation for this game uh that you've had in a long time. And yet you were without head coach Miranda Knowles Roth. Um I know we talk a lot about her influence on this team, but it really goes to show how deep and knowledgeable your coaching tree goes. You know, you've got Tuba Benson Jaja on the sidelines. Now with you guys, you've got um, coaches that I'm not going to be able to name off the top of my head. Can you name some of those coaches and talk about what it means to be in such a good system?
2: Yeah, it is a blessing to have like a full coaching staff. Right. You know, it's not all on Miranda and, you know, she's got tons of other uh, very legitimate obligations with, you know, coaching for the World Games and Birmingham. Uh, She coaches at the varsity level and the high school season. So usually doesn't, you know, free up until uh, right about now, actually, in in the summer. Um, So, yeah, we we're very fortunate to have like a full coaching staff Um, and like any any team. Right. Like people have their strengths and their weaknesses. Um, and I want to give a special shout out, you know, George Summers, uh, is an assistant coach and probably one of the ones, you know, we, we, couldn't name offhand. Um, but you know, he really brought something different. I thought to our film sessions, uh, where he has a real eye for, uh, you know, finding things on film and then being able to, uh, demonstrate them in a way that I think clicks with a lot of people. Uh, and, you know, he has the time to look through those and clip them and, um, you know, he had a whole PowerPoint. It was pretty awesome. So, you know, having, and I, I could sense, you know, the coaches that left time for, you know, for example, TJ Martin, who filled in as kind of our head coach uh, when Miranda was away, you know, that gives him time to sort of focus on the higher level points of, you know, how do we combine all our players, you know, who do we put on O-line, stuff like that. Um, so it's great, you know, in the same way that the players are working as a team, like our coaching staff. Uh, with the addition, you know, John Bosey as a general manager does a lot, can, you know, can never count that guy out in terms of like his contributions. So, um, yeah, it's very cool to see the front office and like a coaching like team. Uh, and we certainly benefited for that from that, you know, to the point where like, yeah, I mean, not having Miranda on the sideline, it's always better when she's there. Uh, but we still felt, you know, confident that we could execute uh, even without her on the field.
1: So you mentioned the some of the lineup decisions, who's playing offense, who's on defense. It feels like this current roster, I mean, you guys have added a bunch of new additions over the past couple of seasons. There's been some experimentation with offense and defense, but generally it feels like guys have just fit in so seamlessly to this hustle system on both sides. And you have guys like John Stubbs and Christian Olsen, the ability to play both ways, can you talk a bit about these new additions and how they fit in so well to this team, and and just generally where you expect things to go from here and, and building on this momentum?
2: Yeah, I think you know I said we didn't have an identity. I, I think that's not true. I guess I should say we are not. Uh, we haven't fine tuned our identity, and I think, uh, but we have a basic framework, and I think that helps a lot with plugging players in and them kind of understanding what the overall game plan is what their role on the team is right um so you know it's no secret like we like the long ball right you know just that off the bat like austin and uh bobby lay and you know Stubbs, like not even to mention uh hayden austin nab who hasn't even played with us and, and you know uh so you know that's not a secret and when you know that you're able to sort of Uh, you know, build the other pieces around that, right? So Brad, Brad Sinjin's, for example, who, you know, we knew could be an offensive weapon. Uh, We'd seen, you know, we've played him. He played uh, on our club teams as well. So, you know, him, he's able to find that piece, right? Because he knows, all right, I am viable as a deep cutter. Um, And I think, especially on offense, you know, I can speak a little more to that. uh, But one of the things we are trying to do, uh, one of the focus points was to uh, let our throwers throw and, you know, let our cutters cut. Um, you know, I think there are situations on the AUDL field where, you know, y- you don't want to completely abandon uh, your handlers or, you know, there are times where cutters should be around the disc more. Uh, there's a lot of situational things, but in general, right, let's, let's have the people who like throwing throw and let's have the people who like catching go and catch. Um, and when you make the game simple like that, it's easy for guys to plug in, especially when they're at the talent level that a lot of these pickups are. Um, and then, briefly on defense, you know, everybody knows we run the zone, right? Like we've got a couple of them, but everybody knows there's a zone coming. So, uh, our new players, you know, can get acquainted with that. They can watch film uh, where they can better understand where they will plug into that system. And it, it's pretty clear. So, uh, yeah, I think we're still fine tuning, but having that general framework, I think, allows players to. Uh, understand what they're getting into honestly before they even come play
0: so as much as we've kind of hyped up the new additions to the hustle the guy the ways in which you guys have sort of become supercharged and become this championship contender over the past two seasons but you're a day one hustle member you're number two all time in goals one of only two players ever with 300 plus it feels like your role hasn't changed a whole bunch and yet you continually find ways to make yourself not just like an efficient part of this offense but like an exceptional part of like you duffed a couple of guys in the air on saturday uh, with goals you you continually make these plays i think in big games where you show that this is sort of your team in a way um obviously there are tons of contributors on this roster but i think you take a lot of personal pride in that can you talk about sort of what your role has been on this hustle team and how you've seen it evolve over the years
2: yeah my role has you know shifted a lot um i think you know that's one of the reasons i think uh, I, i enjoy my work now as the director of player relations is because i i've been in a lot of positions on teams right you know on the rhode island team i was uh a young college kid who only played d-line uh for the first part and then um yeah you know no one knew me no like no one knew anything about the league so I was very much that you know bottom player who didn't expect to make it um same thing when I started in Atlanta you know from day one to the public I you know I caught seven goals I think in the first game or 13 Mm. in the first weekend which was awesome uh but I didn't know I was going to make the team. I didn't really know I was going to play O-line until a week or two before. Um, so, you know, I, have been very fortunate to be in every place from sort of the bottom of the roster guy who you're not sure if they're going to make it week to week and can sympathize with kid or, you know, with kids who don't know on a Wednesday, if they're going to play on Saturday, um, you know, to where I am now, where I, I think I get to be a veteran on the team and I, uh, I like that role. It suits the amount of energy I have now. Um, So, you know, I've always played offense on the team. I think that's been pretty clear. It's kind of funny to me. I I thought about it. You know, this is year eight on the hustle, I think. And uh, or actually maybe it's year seven. I'm not sure. But it's uh, it's pretty late. (laughs) And my my role this past game was literally my role that it was on day one. Right. It's like you said, go dunk on some people, just have fun (laughs) downfield. Um, you know, I think I had 34 throwing yards or something like that. Um, so the way I see my role and how it has been is I I, I think of myself as a flex cutter. Um, and what I mean by that is like I, I still love going deep, you know, I'll still do it. Uh, but it didn't, you know, last year when you got a guy like Antoine, you got Carl Enzone, you know, I think it makes sense for me to be kind of this wily release to keep the disc moving. Um, you know, I think my disc skills have, uh, improved as far as just like moving the disc, keeping, you know, being, uh, being able to put the disc in like an attacking situation. Um, but when it's not necessary, you know, or when, when Carl Enzo goes down in the Austin game and we need, uh, we need some magic left in the end zone. Um, you know, I still got it in me and I, I appreciate my teammates know that too. I, uh, we scrimmaged UGA in the weekend before, uh, the Austin game. And I sucked. I was (laughs) not good, but I told my team, you know, I was like, Hey, when the lights are on, when it counts, when there's people in the crowd, like that's when I have the most fun. And, you know, I think I've, uh, I think I've had a few highlights now that uh, I feel comfortable saying that.
0: A few, just a few, you know, nothing big.
1: (laughs) So speaking more to this, this fun offense that you're a part of, and and particularly your deep cutting ability, and you've mentioned it, you guys love the long ball, (laughs) yet you guys are number one in fewest turnovers per game this season, averaging less than 10. How, how, first of all, just like, how is that possible? Like, how, how does a team limit turnovers so much, yet still maintain that aggressiveness to attack downfield so consistently like is it just taking full advantage of opportunities to go deep but not forcing it like how how does that balance strike in this offense
2: this is where i gotta give a shout out to our handlers right it ain't it ain't me launching them at a high percentage it's it's draco back there i mean you can see it when uh i mean that he doesn't mess up throws right i mean maybe some of them like maybe one or two don't work out but like they're never really short they're never just like out of bounds right like these are good shots that are going up Bobby is putting up good shots you know everybody that's throwing uh Christian Olsen put up some some good like a solid deep shots and um you know it's like I said when you know when you know your identity a little more and you're getting the guys who are good at that right they're they're the ones who are like I, I dream about like the way, uh, Bobby and Draco like watch their throws. They just sit on a platter. They just sit out in space. They're they're legitimately a pleasure to catch. Um, and so, yeah. I mean, I think that's really what it is. Is it's just we've got good throwers who you know understand. Uh, we've we've done a lot of long ball stuff or a lot of uh, small ball stuff in the past. So you know they understand the value of the disc. They can move it uh, when it needs to be moved. Um, but if you have people who are very good at throwing it and you have folks downfield who are very good at going and getting it, um, you know, we don't shy away from that. And especially, uh, now we feel pretty comfortable with our O-line on defense as well. So, yeah, I mean, you got Carl, you know, I hope he's all right. He had to sit the game, but, um, you know, Carl end zone, Eli Jaime, myself downfield, uh, with our only focus being on like attacking the end zone, that's a lot of fun to be a part of. So then is that, is that a
1: conscious effort by all the cutters? Like we are going to constantly look for these deep shots all game because we have the personnel to put them up or is it more of like a just situations present themselves where that is the right move? I guess what, what is the, the cutters mentality with those throwers?
2: Yeah, I think it's situational. Uh, we're at a point, you know, the other nice thing about being on this cutting line is there's a lot of experience there, right? There's um there's not a lot of, uh, yeah, I, there are times when, uh, playing with Dylan Tunnell, I, maybe I cut when I shouldn't have, right. Like, like maybe I gave him a window that, um, like, wasn't the best look, but I was just doing it like no matter what. Cause you know, I was just young and running around. Um, and I still might do that. Honestly, I, I get big eyes when I see the end zone, but, um, yeah, I don't, uh, sorry. I spaced on the question. That's, <laughs>
1: Oh, I'll get just just the general cutter mindset, like if you guys are always looking for those big plays, or if it really is just situations that present themselves to you. But I mean, it sounds like it's, it's maybe a bit of both like that, that definitely seems to be built into the identity of this offense. So it's it sounds helpful when the cutters and the handlers are all on the same page about it.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it's it's situational, right? Like we're advanced enough to make the smart play, but obviously whenever one of our slingers has it, like it's just natural to want to go deep, especially, uh, yeah, some of our finishers are great finishers. So it's just allowing people to do what they want to do and uh, it's working out so far.
0: It also seems like you guys now have a couple of pairs with, the Florida boys coming up, you've got Bobby Lay connecting to Chen's Deep. That happened once on Saturday. And like you were saying, your receivers just sort of run into these goals, almost smiling and clap catching at full speed. Uh, you've got yourself and Draco as kind of a battery or Draco and Jaime or Draco and Eckwurzel. like, it seems like you guys have a lot of sort of complementary chemistry between your throwers and your receivers.
2: Yeah, I would say so. I think we don't actually get a chance. Uh, you know, I, I Austin lives in the Atlanta area, um, so I see him a fair amount and, you know, I'm able to work out with him. Uh, but I think it's really ultimate is the kind of game where, um, you know, it, it, it can be kind of obvious, right? Like when the skill set is pretty high as far as like I know his abilities as a thrower and he knows mine as a cutter that. Um, we've really gotten into a groove, and especially for yeah, like me and me and Austin. Um, you know, this is five plus years on the hustle together. Um, so we've got some good chemistry there. Uh, yeah, and like you said, Bobby's got the Florida boys, it even goes a little bit on the D line, I would say, with uh, fairly in some of the Florida boys when he gets it going. Um, fairly, that's the reality of our guys. team yeah yeah it's good to have him healthy again you know he's had kind of a kind of a bum knee for a bit so seeing him you know recover he's obviously like a deadly weapon when when he's uh when he's good had an, had that awesome d on swy um that was so huge. yeah i mean and that's the difference with our team now it's just it's so deep that's what's awesome right is like we have the space to have fairly coming in um and has the space where we don't need him immediately to be the best player that he's ever been. He can like recover, he can work back into it. And uh, yeah, that's, that's the plan kind of for the rest of the season. Hopefully we hang on to this, you know, one, the game lead over Austin and, you know, are sort of able to fine tune uh, with our, you know, uh, foot out in front for right now. What would you say
1: is, next for this hustle team where do you guys go from here what do you see as the end goal for the season whether it's progressing offensively defensively you know general end goal of making it to championship weekend championship whatever that may be Uh, I guess what's what's the general mindset of the team going
2: forward Uh, I think the general mindset is just uh, really to keep keep getting better right? I think we, like I said, we have this general identity that's been built. uh, And now we have the luxury of continuing to fine tune, continuing to gel, uh, continuing to get reps with uh, certain folks, right? Um, You know, I I haven't gotten to throw a lot with Leaf, you know, I've seen him a few times, and we're in contact, he's a great presence on the team. Uh, But would it help to get a few more practices and a few more games in, you know, for sure. Uh, And I think there's a a few more names, you can go up and down our roster that I think just getting more reps together and starting to fine tune what we know we're going to do, right? Like we know we're going to throw a zone and a person, and now it's a matter of you know when do we throw each one, which ones do we throw, uh, what do we save, right, for the playoffs? So if if other coaches are listening, you know maybe we've got some up our sleeve, maybe we don't. Uh, so yeah, we we get to kind of fine tune at a higher level, um, and hopefully too, honestly, with a bigger roster is you know, hopefully we can play this as a whole season, right? We've got uh, some games where maybe we work in some of our younger guys to build them up some experience uh, that maybe pays de- You know, pays off down the road. Um, so we're certainly in a very uh, beneficial place to be able to work on that versus, you know, having 23 people and one head coach and just hoping that everybody can make everything. We can kind of view this and make what we are hoping is kind of an organizational run, uh, at championship weekend.
0: Right on. All right. So final question, it's going to have nothing to do with anything, uh, about team success or anything you have made, a hand, not just a handful, like a, a shopping cart or like one of those Ikea things where you can move a ton of furniture on carts of highlights. I mean, you've been on sports center, I think two or three times now, I think the, the play you made in week one is actually the first number one play in Ultimate Frisbee on SportsCenter. Can't quite remember. what What's your favorite highlight? Is it the skies? Is it the layouts? Is it the scorpion kick? Is it the against the grain <laughs> block? Like, what is it?
2: Yeah, uh, well, thank you, Juan. I, I do take a lot of pride in uh, putting out highlights. Uh, you know, I always say, I, I this was my attitude from college was, like, we might not win the game, but I can make the best play, right? Like, <laughs> we might lose, you know, 8-13 to Bowdoin College, but they're going to remember not to put it in the air, you know, against against the little guy. So, um, yeah, I take a lot of pride in that, and, and I've been able to put myself in a lot of situations where it works out. I would say the ones that I like the most are the skies. Uh, I was a I was a basketball player growing up. Uh, And I could never actually dunk the ball. I was so close. Um, The ball is too big for me, as it turns out. Uh, I I can't really palm it, and I couldn't quite get the height uh, over the rim, and that always just ate at me. But in Ultimate, you can do something pretty close, which is just snatch (laughs) it just all over somebody, all over a helpless defender. And so, um, yeah, that's what gets me excited I think, you know, the layouts are kind of what people would sort of expect, uh, probably from my player archetype, is some smaller player running really fast and getting these layouts. That was really unnatural to me for a long time, so I'm glad that I've, like, figured out how to lay out, um, but I still just, I really like Sky and People, man. I really like, uh, really like dunking on them, so anytime I get one of those, you- you'll see on my Instagram, like, that's definitely the ones I'm sharing is, uh, is the big dunks. <laughs>
0: You had me standing up on Saturday night. You know, I've watched you for years now, and it's still—you still surprise me sometimes with how springy you get all of a sudden.
2: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I'm. A, it's the benefit of being a lightweight, and you know, shout out GPP or whatever the workouts I'm doing. Uh, yeah, I mean, I feel good, and I just I'm gonna keep doing it till I can't. But um, yeah, I was I was happy. Some of the young guys on the team have been giving me a hard time. You know, I think they. Uh, they forgot that I, you know, I still had some ups in me, so I had to show them. And uh, sorry to anyone on Austin who got in the way. Uh, they were actually a really great team. And I love playing them, but you know, disc goes up. It's a risk to be in the area.
0: Got to remind him. <laughs> you gave Mark
2: Henke
1: a really good welcome to the AUDL moment. We'll we'll leave it at that.
2: Yeah, Just he was such a nice ahead. kid too. He was like the whole game. Like we were, it was great. Uh, but yeah, like I said, I mean, you know, you you know what you're getting into when you come out on the field. So, there it is.
0: Yeah, I think Henke had uh, Alex Davis the night before, and then he had you on Saturday night. So, pretty rigorous introduction to the pro level for uh, the Henke brother, uh, the rookie Matt. But he did he did admirably. But yeah, that one guy that was rim level. That was rim level.
2: <laughs> that's what I'm telling myself. That's for sure. So. <laughs>
0: Well, thank you so much for coming on, Matt. Uh, Super big pleasure to have you on the show. Um, Best of luck to you in Atlanta on the rest of your season going forward in 2022. And if there is a chance for us to talk again, I'm sure we're going to take it because this is always a blast.
2: Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. Really appreciate what y'all do, you know, giving the insight into uh, the league news and whatnot. I know a lot of the folks on The Hustle listen to it. Uh, So we're all tuning in and uh, yeah, hopefully we talk again and you'll be... Seeing us at a championship weekend is the hope. So we'll see you there.
1: (laughs) Sounds good. Thanks, Matt. Thank you, Matt.
0: I know it's kind of a trite thing to say for somebody who is having so much visible fun as Matt Smith does every single time he steps onto the field, (laughs) but man, it just feels like that dude keeps dipping into the fountain of youth. I keep expecting him to have some kind of drop-off, some kind of instability to his game. And you just see him going out there and roofing people every week and not making turnovers and just sort of being the energizer that makes this whole hustle system work, both on the field in like a practical sense and I think just in a you know spiritual quasi-kumbaya sense. You know, when you when you have that guy out there just churning around and looking to get his in the air against any opponent I feel like that just galvanizes everyone you know it's so interesting to think about how
1: his role has evolved throughout his career and he and he talked about it some in the interview but you know starting out as pretty much just a goal scorer downfield threat like that is he loves being in the end zone to now I think he's he's probably got more talent around him than ever before and you know, he talked about the cutters in the Atlanta offense and how there's a lot of opportunities for all of them to get those deep shots and get all the glory. So I think he's gotten like maybe more choosy with his deep cuts, but the fact he still very much has those in him and has the ability to roof any opponent. It's just, it's so fun because like you said, it feels like he turns back the clock anytime he does that, but then it's like, Oh yeah. He actually does do that just periodically now, rather than all the time when he was doing it in 2015, 2016. Like he's still very much capable of being that same player. I think his whole game has just matured in a very cool way.
0: Yeah, it feels like he picks his spots a little bit more. It felt like he was more of a main cog, you know, 2015 through 2018-ish for Atlanta. In the mm-hmm. last couple of years, it's been more of that stabilizing role as maybe the the Austin Taylors and the John Stubbs sort of are the the headliners of some of the O lines that Atlanta runs out but man you know he just he shows up on Sports Center in week one of the season he <laughs> roofs two people in week four in the game of the week if like he said in the interview when the lights go on he just has a way of showing up.
1: yeah it's a different Matt Smith but but also the same Matt Smith as we've always known.
0: So with both their wins against Austin, do either of them change your perception on who might win this division? Or do you still think it's just neck and neck with Atlanta and Carolina? It still feels very much neck and neck. I think this performance, this performance
1: by Atlanta, though, considering that the week one game we saw against between Carolina and Atlanta was, you know, less than full strength Atlanta. They were missing a lot of their bigger guys on defense. Carolina didn't run away with that matchup, but they did kind of slowly squash Atlanta, I would say. This performance, seeing Atlanta at closer to full strength, about as close as they could be, they didn't have Khalif El-Salon, but adding back John Stubbs and Brett Holzmeier, Michael Fairley, all, all these impact guys to this hustle lineup and the way we saw Bobby Lay debut on this offense and this new you know i guess it's it's not totally new it's new from last year getting Austin Taylor downfield and using him as an initiator that to me if i were carolina i would be a little bit more concerned considering they only pulled away with a two-goal win i still favor carolina in the in the division i just think i'm i'm more high on atlanta than i was prior to this weekend after seeing what they did to Austin.
0: Yeah, I think I have to concur with you that Saturday's performance showed a higher ceiling for Atlanta. It showed it showed the confirmation of the hype that we were buying into in the preseason Mm -hmm. with these additions, right? And with the addition of Bobby Lay and being able to free up Draco a little bit more. It was it was the realization of those dreams, I think a little bit. And even without Khalif al-Salam and their head coach and Miranda Knowles, both being at world's events, you know, it's, it's really encouraging for Atlanta going forward. Uh, I think especially as they kind of gear up for their rematch with Carolina, um, we should move elsewhere though. We should get to Philly's big weekend to kind of reassert itself into the playoff discussion out East. Um, they get two big road wins at Montreal and at Ottawa and back to back nights and Friday and Saturday last weekend. Uh, Friday night in Montreal, I thought it was the story of their defense and the way in which they played the Montreal offense with that eighth defender being the wind uh, all night. Mm-hmm. There, was, there was some pretty <laughs> adverse conditions up in Montreal, and I just felt like Philly knew how to play to that. They they denied Montreal a lot of their hucking opportunities. They made them work it, and the Royale just did not seem to want to play that style of offense, especially down a few of their top-line starters in Malik Azhar-Samar, Nabil Shahoush, uh Christophe Tremblay-Zonkas, it just felt like Philly had the momentum and the plays to get that win.
1: Yeah, I I do wonder how how big those losses were for Montreal in those two cutters, specifically for their offense, because, yeah, they just kind of looked a bit lost all game, like they could never quite get into any rhythm. You know, completing only two of seven pucks on the day of course the wind being a big factor in that but philly on the other hand was taking a lot more shots they had sequences where their offense looked comfortable and montreal just never seemed like they could hit their stride and i don't know does it does it reveal a lack of depth do you think for this montreal team or are you concerned about montreal going forward
0: yeah, I am concerned about Montreal. I I kind of had them pegged as being you know, a toss up with Boston almost for that third seed coming into the season in the East. Mm-hmm. And I thought their 3-0 start was impressive, but a little hollow in that the Boston team that they played did not have anywhere near its full lineup and that Montreal was at home and then their other two wins coming against uh, or, I'm sorry, one win coming against the Canada team, the other one coming on a end-of-regulation buzzer beater in Week 3 against Philadelphia <laughs> that, you know, yeah. is literally like a coin flip. It's a Hail Mary situation. Like, if they don't complete that, game could be completely different. Um, yeah, I'm a, I'm a little worried about Montreal and specifically what you brought up, their depth. Uh, I think that you saw against this Philly team when they don't have their main pieces, they don't have a good sense of where they want to go with the disc, and it can lead to some uh disorganized offensive possessions you know they were 11 of 32 Mm -hmm. on offensive holds you know like you said two of seven on hooks 34 turnovers and I get that they're you know both teams committed 30 plus turnovers but Phoenix felt like they were understanding that they were playing field position and that they were willing to like take a take a chance deep and then match up and play defense and get the disc back whereas Royale felt lost a lot of the time yeah
1: yeah. And you look at their breaks, only two of fifteen on the night for Montreal. And their their D line defense has been shaky at times, even earlier this season against Boston. I think they ultimately converted a, a decent amount, but I know they started off super slow in that game. They've gone through stretches where they just struggle to convert off of turnovers. And that's an aspect an aspect of the game where Christoph tremblay Drunkai is kind of developing and maybe underrated in his offensive ability still because he can get downfield he can even do some facilitating of drives with his throws he is a pretty aggressive player whether it's offensively or defensively and yeah it's another another reason to be a little bit concerned about the lack of depth when they might not have a guy like that active in every game this season
0: and on the flip side, I, I continue to be impressed with how this Philly team is solidifying. Jordan Ryan makes such a difference for them in the backfield. It allows He's awesome. Sean Mott and Alex Thorne to become a little bit more motion throwers, which is what they both excel at. Ryan can kind of be that pocket passer. He has Ryan has one of the quickest releases I've ever seen for a thrower. His flick huck release is blink of an eye. And he had one upwinder in Montreal that no other thrower was even attempting. He had like a 60 yard shot upwind at one point, like people weren't scoring on that side of the field. And he just took an <laughs> yeah. upwind bomb attempt and connected on it. He he has a little bit of bravado. And I think especially when combined with Sean Mott and Greg Martin and James Pollard, they they sort of had this swagger a little bit on the Phoenix offense when they get going, you know, that, there was that crazy sequence in Montreal where Montreal were about to score it and they tipped it and it went off the hands of their receiver and then Pollard just picked up the disc and bombed it 80 yards to Mike Arcata streaking in space for the score. It, it This Philly team seems like they know when to seize on opportunities and while they're still figuring out how to execute on some of those, they know when the points are and I feel like that's drastically different from previous iterations of Philadelphia. It feels like they know when the moments that they have to step up and make plays are where it feels like prior Phoenix seems to be close in games, but I'd kind of just slip out of the reach of them. Whereas this year they're in this year. They are in every single game, you know, their four logger, yeah. or their three losses have come by four combined goals. It it does
1: feel like they have maybe a bit more of an edge to them this season. And the Jordan Ryan addition to that backfield has just been huge. I feel like coming into the season, we were thinking like it's not it's, it wasn't great to have Mott in almost a center handler position or one of their two handlers most of the year last season. Like he is a guy that thrives downfield and can really be fully utilized when he doesn't have the disc in his hands as much as he does. And, yeah, they just have all these shooters on offense that makes them a really a really fun offense to watch and, and kind of a, a risk-reward approach at times. But Jordan Ryan, looking at his final stat line, he actually completed all five of his hucks against Montreal. And in those conditions, obviously uh, an extremely big nod to his ability as a thrower. I also love that James Pollard has been stuck to the O-line for most of the year. I think that has paid off huge. And the presence of him and Ryan and Mott, really, the what those guys do for a receiver like Greg Martin and the ability he has to get deep and then consistently win in the air or just outrun his matchups, they've got a good thing going when they're clicking. I, I still think I'm looking for a little bit more consistency from their offense and maybe team as a whole, like I think they have 20 plus turnovers in every game, except that first Boston game this season. So still a ways to go, but I think the potential has been there. It's been more obvious this year than recent seasons. You know, I think just from an offensive standpoint, at least, but really defensively too. I think their defense has improved.
0: Yeah. I would, I would agree that there's still some, polish lacking from their overall execution. You know, you look at their top throwers and they're all beneath they're at 93% or below. I guess Alex Thorne mm-hmm. is at 94.7, but even even that's kind of a low mark for your center handler when you compare it to like a Pavel Giannis or a Christian right, Olsen right. for Atlanta. That that center distributor role you kind of like to see it more of a 96 95, 96, 97 completion percentage rate. So this Phoenix mm. team likes to shoot it. It just feels like their shots are better like they're they're still just putting up a ton of them but they're taking slightly <laughs> better looks and they have more able throwers balanced around their offense now more than ever with well especially and the if presences of Pollard and Ryan
1: yeah and if they're shooting to guys like Greg Martin or James Pollard when he gets downfields those are higher percentage shots than a lot of other teams are able to take because of those receiving abilities.
0: I, d- I just want to point out though, last season only Sean Mott and Mark Arcata finished with 30 or more assists for the Phoenix and already through their first five games, they have four players above 10 assists. So it feels like there's a lot more points of attack for this Phoenix offense, but let's, yeah. <clears throat> let's get to the Greg Martin game against Ottawa. Uh, <laughs> sure. Cause that was one of the more fun offensive firework showcases of the season so far. Uh Phoenix, of course coming out with the victory, but the details of it being a little bit more dicey Ottawa did play really well at home. Once again, it felt, it feels like they have a very good energy at home, especially offensively. Excuse me. Jeff Bevan just continues to impress in 2022. Uh, Has to be, I think, the most underrated thrower in the league at this point, given the numbers he's putting up and showing that he can do it consistently. Uh, Mm -hmm. He just seems to have one of the better power position hucks on both his forehand and backhand side. And so Ottawa's offense was remaining punchy throughout. It's just that they couldn't keep up with Greg Martin as he set a single-game receiving yards record with, what was it, 658?
1: 658, yeah. No receiver had ever gone over 600.
0: Well, and he was only getting better as the game wore on. That's that's the (laughs) thing where you really start to have to give a player like Martin his flowers because this is now the second season where he's just putting up all AUDL numbers every time he steps on the field. Opposing defenses know he's the number one target. They're putting double coverage on Martin. Doesn't mean anything anymore. Doesn't matter. I mean, yeah. The, the the closing goals he had against the Outlaws were all like top 10 level plays. One of them was this yeah. back corner one where he, he just kind of jumped so high very quickly that he lost balance in the air for a second, but then he had the presence of mind to still get the toe tap down as he's like, again, being carried out of the back of the end zone almost because his vertical is too large. <laughs> um, then <laughs> after that, he has... The first of uh, two big skies, like he just goes downfield, roofs somebody, but the real closer was their their game-clinching goal where Pollard gets the disc and just bombs a laser 60 yards into the end zone, and two defenders are draped on Martin. Like, they are in great position, athletic players, I don't want to name them because I don't like just dunking on people on the show, but (laughs) very solid defenders who are capable of shutting down a majority of... Receivers in the air in this league, and Martin just like he just went up. It had to be like a forty-five-inch vert on that. I mean, he's he's twirling backward over them and high-pointing the disc, an extra six inches above two other players who are getting very good reads and jumps on the disc. It's
1: just times these so well. I he might be one of the best deep ball timers as far as you know apparent 50-50 shots that or no way 50-50 when Greg Martin is in the area. He is so springy, and yeah, It's in addition to that vertical, everything seems extremely well high-pointed.
0: Well, and, you know, we were talking about, we may be talking about the two best jumpers on a pound-for-pound basis in the league in Matt Smith, who we we interviewed and mentioned before, and Greg Martin, and the thing is, is that both of them are under 5'10". I mean, Greg Martin might hit 510 with like a little bit of something on his shoe or something, but it, it is remarkable how physical and like a good way he is and, and how much he dominates aerial space. I mean, I remember one time at all-star weekend overhearing Jeff Babbitt just sort of gab about the springy little guy on Philly, you know, the, <laughs> just like unable to yeah. comprehend how he got up so high and so quickly. That's the other thing about both of them. It's one of those things that I've never been able to understand as somebody with a piss poor vertical jumping ability. Uh they get up fast. It's not just that yes. they get up high, they elevate and accelerate into the air quickly. And that's what Martin did on that final sky to secure Philly's win. It was like he went up quicker than the defenders. I it you don't see that a whole bunch, just that liftoff velocity that they have. I also feel like
1: Credit to him for doing that so consistently late in the game. Oftentimes, we'll see guys start to cramp up in the fourth quarter. We'll see maybe they're not jumping quite as high as they would have been early in the game. Greg Martin did not let up at all throughout that entire game. He caught, I think it was six hucks in the first half for over 400 yards. Really kept that going throughout the game. By the way, James Pollard, like Greg Martin being in the situation that he's in with throwers like Pollard and Ryan like we've talked about it's so ideal because these are guys that just know how to take advantage of really good downfield cutters and feed them repeatedly James Pollard completed eight of nine hucks in that Ottawa game 88.9 completion rate I think he's completing over 80 percent of his hucks this season and I I just love the Pollard fit in the offense I love what it does for Greg Martin where not every Greg Martin goal has to come from Mott or Arcada, like it was last year. They've got a much more well-rounded attack, even though we can still see Greg Martin take over and be the focal point downfield like he's been before.
0: So I actually had to reach out to James Pollard and just ask him, how how audacious it is the level that he's playing at right now but also did he buy any kind of beer or beverage for uh greg martin after <laughs> that last guy and bollard very humbly admitted that was a total trust throw <laughs> you know like, <laughs> yeah i i mean greg martin has like a combo meter it feels like he was doing this who last season who two wouldn't where, trust
1: him i would trust him who, with with every throw
0: but like you're saying it's like he levels up over the course of a game most other players get cramps when they get fed that much. And they're expected to do that much workout in space. And the opposite happens for Martin. It's like his abilities only get stronger if you start just feeding him the disc.
1: Yeah. And then combined with the fact that maybe the defense's legs are a bit tired. I mean, that was a pretty high scoring game and a lot of effort by both teams throughout. That's it's hard to keep up that intensity and pace for a full 48 minutes.
0: I don't even know if it's like the fatigue of defenders so much as the demoralizing nature of the <laughs> Well, right. I think it's a combo. It's when you just, it's like, you know, you see it, I think with players like a Ben yacht a little bit where there's just, what do we do? But there's something particularly, I think pernicious about, again, a dude five foot 10 or under just, you have no answers for him. None. And that's even what uh, Jeff Bevan said in this week's Tuesday toss that Evan Lepler wrote was that, we just couldn't find a matchup for greg martin. we just there was no one who could do anything about him. yeah. and i think that you know, despite being 2 and 3, philly because they have an option like that, it feels like they're on equal footing with boston and montreal right now for that that potential third seed in the east, you know. they philly saved their season effectively with these two wins on the road. for sure. it
1: it still feels very much up for grabs between those three teams. I don't, I don't even know who I give the edge to at this point. Maybe, Maybe Boston still? Like, we saw Boston have just such a decisive win over Toronto this past weekend, and it's a reminder that whenever Tanner Johnson is in the lineup, their offense can just be as good as any in this division. I think consistency is the main concern we're seeing for all three of these teams that will be competing for the three spot, but it'll definitely be worth watching really every time these teams match up which i think philly and boston have an upcoming game next week maybe and i you know week all of those are going to be tone setters and obviously have playoff ramifications was that week 6
0: that philly and boston will match up i don't I have the schedule so up. okay i was just wondering if it was week 5 or week 6 week 5 as in yeah yeah big match yeah week 6 boston
1: Boston actually has a doubleheader in week six. They play DC on Friday night and then Philly on Saturday night. So that, that could a, be fun.
0: That is a very high level difficulty <laughs> and high importance doubleheader for Boston. That's huge.
1: That that could be their season right there. Honestly, if they go 2-0 on that road trip, I mean, I guess very little chance to beat DC, but if I guess if they can beat Philly, that feels like it might be enough for them to pull ahead of Philly, having that tiebreaker over them because they beat them in Week One. Yeah,
0: and if Philly wins by just two or more goals, then they'll have the <laughs> right. tiebreaker against Boston. You know, like it's phenomenal how quickly Philly turned their season around after these two wins. Um, yeah, should we just kind of let's let's go through quickly kind of the rest of Week Four recap action. So you mentioned Boston defeating Toronto last Friday night, twenty three to thirteen. Uh, Indianapolis defeats Pittsburgh 20 to 16 in a pretty important matchup in the central Uh, Indianapolis now improving to two and one and now holding a head to head matchup against Pittsburgh who may or may not compete for that third seed. I thought they might have a chance after Mm. how they looked pretty competitive against Madison a couple weeks ago, but they had a rough game against the alley cats at home. It just felt like they were, throwing the disc away at times, a lot of questionable decisions and the alley cats for their part, capitalize on them. Uh, biggest moment of the game, obviously being Levi Jacobs is insane uh, over the shoulder, greatest out the back of the end zone, completing it to cam Brock. It's actually the second time Levi Jacobs has done something like that. He did it a few years ago at home against Minnesota, similar play where he's completely blindly throwing it back into somebody. Um, so, Hats off to Jacobs, who's, again, having a phenomenal season this year, similar to last year. He, he, I think, continues to be one of the more underrated strike cutters and throwers in the league, um, but big, yeah. big road win for Indy.
1: It feels like we never really talk about Levi Jacobs enough, and maybe that's just because Indy is never, or and within the last year and a half to two years, they haven't been towards the top of the division, so it's harder to key in on a player like him, but he he has really been a rock for this team. And it feels like, I don't know if he's gotten better every year, maybe more consistent is a better word. It feels like he is such a big part of what their offense does every single game and seeing him out there with Keegan North and having those two shooters in the middle of the field to really dictate an offense is great for Indy. And I think that's going to be a big part of their identity
0: throughout the season. Yeah, it feels like Indy has a notion of how to win right now. Although it is their first win against a non-Detroit team since twenty nineteen. So. Yeah, congrats to Indy to <laughs> beat a non-Detroit team. So, but a very important game to win for Indy, I think, to stay relevant in the playoff contention in the Central. Um, San Diego Growlers get their third straight win, winning twenty two to twenty at home over Seattle. Little bit of a close call for San Diego against uh, (laughs) Are we surprised? Mm. Are we
1: surprised? Don't they do this every year with I feel like with Seattle specifically, almost drop a game to
0: them at home? You know, Cascades brought a a lot of good young energy to that game. I love the way that Seattle has been playing despite lacking their two top throwers and Adam Simon and Manny Eckert basically this entire season. It feels like they're just trying to figure out places where players can play. And I really admire the Cascades for showing up every week, despite being 0-5 and giving teams good games, at least for a half. Um, but on the flip side, it felt like this was the game that the Growlers should just put away. Like, they should have just came out and, you know, dispatched the Cascades. And the skades stuck around. They they made a really competitive game out of that. They did. I
1: mean, San Diego, yeah, they just couldn't put them away with enough breaks, I think, was the main issue. They had 15 break opportunities in the game Converted six of them, 40% conversion rate. It's okay, but I think San Diego knows they want to be better than that. And offensively, they were missing Travis Dunn. I think generally McDougal has done a fantastic job filling in a somewhat similar role, but really liking the deep space uh, a lot for guys like Goose and Tim Okita to shoot into. San Diego defense, honestly, I've been generally impressed by. I think the the break conversions could use some work, but guys like Stefan Samu, I I think that's how you pronounce his name. He's been a fantastic defender for them over the first, you know, several games. He's been great. Zach Schachner still looks good. I think Steven Milardovich and Jordan Quekborner are, are very much tone setters for this defense and Michael Tran is playing great. They have a lot of good pieces all over the field. And I, I yeah, I don't it's hard to point to what it is about San Diego and why it seems like it takes a bit of time before they can just totally stomp out these lower opponents in the West Division. But, you know, they're pulling out wins. They've won what is it, three straight now? So yep.
0: They are in a playoff spot currently. But it's against the teams that they've always beaten. You know, it's Oakland, LA, (laughs) like That's who the Growlers have feasted on in the West Division the past two years. Uh, It just feels like until San Diego squares up against one of these really impressive expansion teams again, which they'll have an opportunity to uh, in week six against Portland, um, or I'm sorry, week seven against Portland, uh, Growlers have a three-week bye right now after their win against seattle so they'll have some time Time. to get some game plan and prep for the nitro as they get set to host them on june 11th but until that game it just i jury's still a little out right now in san diego they don't really have (laughs) uh, a convincing win yeah well i'm what is what are your thoughts on on the fact that
1: salt lake just dismantled seattle when they played against them it feels like salt lake colorado and portland even though we haven't quite seen it yet from colorado and portland it feels like those teams when they get into an offensive rhythm are totally capable of just wiping out one of these other teams in the west where it feels like san diego is almost destined for these closer games against opponents that it feels like they should be much better than
0: why is that i mean it's not like i'm asking you i don't know It's not like the Growlers lack an offensive firepower with Goose and Paul Alley and Travis Dunn and Sean McDougal and the times you've listed all those names back and forth, you know, like they've got capable offensive players. And yet it feels like they can't quite get a decisive win in the same way that some of the other division leaders do, you know, like like New York did this last weekend when they just blow out Toronto, you know, like DC does whenever they feast on any non New York team. Carolina does yeah. it too. Atlanta does it too. You know, they kind of like put the hurt on teams when they have the opportunity. And with San Diego, it just feels like everyone lingers. And yeah, and like I wonder how it was last year. I I don't, I don't know of it, why. Maybe it just
1: it might it, just be playing down to your opponent's level at times. Maybe they just get a little too comfortable coming into those matchups and allow teams to stick around longer than they should. Maybe it's just they don't feel any pressure. To win, so they're a little bit looser, maybe a little bit more laid back, knowing that they'll probably win anyway. That's kind of it
0: felt like they approached that's kind of the, to anything. That's how it felt like they approached Week One's loss to Salt Lake because Salt Lake just came out and blitzed them, and it felt like San Diego had n- no real ability to respond and be like, "Oh, right." I, I mean, I shouldn't say that they did. They took a lead. They the did. Fourth. Yeah, they, they, did. they did. did. They did. But it felt like in the game, you know, it's that thing of they almost. Ex- Expected to win at home a little bit. And it feels like right. they they had the same thing against Seattle, where Seattle just kind of kept coming back and kept coming back, got up off of the mat. You know, they're making turnovers, but then they're making plays off of it. You know, they're scrappy. And it feels like growlers sometimes have a difficulty in creating space there. And I don't know why, it just makes me hesitant about them sometimes, given the level of talent, given, I guess, my expectations from them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know. Thinking back to that Salt Lake game, right, maybe if they, if they had a stronger start to that game, because, yeah, they did kind of kick it into gear in that third quarter, fourth qu- quarter turn where it was like, oh, like we got to start tightening up everything and, and really putting together points and, and breaks and all that. But it was almost too little too late at that point, maybe. And then Salt Lake just sort of outlasted them. So, yeah, it just- yeah maybe it's Maybe it's the start for the Growlers. Maybe they just have to start fast. That's that's kind of what I think. Salt Lake and Portland, and I can see Colorado doing this too. I think they they can be really aggressive, well, fast starting
0: teams. And here's your point that Seattle outscored San Diego nine to eight in the first quarter. Se- Seattle oh, put up nine go. goals right away. Yeah. Wow! Yeah,
1: that's a lot. Good for yeah. them.
0: That's a lot against a very good Growlers defense and. To San Diego's credit, they made adjustments and limited cascades to uh, 11 goals over the next three quarters. Much more like a traditional San Diego Growlers defense, but it's that slow start again. And you're right. It's the inversion from how these expansion teams are playing where they just come out and blitz you. They come out and they want to huck and they want to get to their playmakers and they want to make you keep up with them.
1: Is some of that, do you think, just the, the
0: veteran nature of the
1: Growlers and maybe saving their legs a bit more for later in game? Been here in the game? before. <laughs> whereas, whereas Salt Lake, Portland, Colorado, they just have all these young guys. They're like, go run around for, you know, as fast as you can for a quarter and then do it again three more times. I, I wonder how much of it is, is sort of like a youth veteran, you know, mindset difference.
0: Well, and it gets back to the the fundamental clash. We were wondering about how would the expansion teams play against San Diego, and one of the things that we were a little concerned with was San Diego's age. It's it's the double edged sword of San Diego. They both have the most experience; they've been here before, but there's maybe a, li- a little bit of complacency there. And these expansion teams don't have that. They are proving themselves week by week, and it feels like. The Growlers have to kind of adjust to that a little bit. Like, there's, there's just like they clearly have the talent to to continue to be at the top of the West Division, but I think it's a mindset thing a little bit.
1: Yeah, i I can't wait for that Portland game. I think that's going to be.
0: I I want all of the rest. Like, so San Diego's remaining schedule is just packed with matchups against the expansion teams, and I'm excited for each one of those because. I do think San Diego shows up for big games. Like they know to come out and show up against these expansion teams going forward.
1: Yeah, it's going to be tough though, because I'm I'm looking. It's Portland, then LA, and then it's the doubleheader at Salt Lake, at Colorado, then come back home to play Colorado again. It's tough. That's a stretch of one, two, three, four games against expansion teams in their next five games total.
0: Yeah. So make or break, make or break. Yeah. That's the heart of the season. Well, and we were talking about this leading into the pod of all of the divisions, the West feels the most chaotic because if any one of the top four teams, San Diego and the three expansion teams drops a game to one of the teams that aren't one of those, like if San Diego were to have lost to Seattle, that would have been backbreaking. And oh, so yeah. it feels like there's sort of these pitfall trap games all over the division or all over the schedules for these West division teams at the top. And it's just right. going to be a matter of time before LA picks off one of them or Seattle finally gets their full roster and maybe gets Matt Raider in the lineup and they go off for a game and take down Portland <laughs> <Yeah>. or something, <laughs> you know, like, it well, just, yeah, the, we've
1: seen these these lower teams aren't that far off, right? Like, yeah, Seattle hasn't had Manny Eckert all season. Adam Simon has only played the first game. They're, they've are they played with a depleted roster, and they've come close in several games so far.
0: They lost on a buzzer beater on Sunday to L.A., you know? Like, <laughs> if you did. go and look at the team stats, Seattle played a better game. They, they, like, own most of the team stat categories. It's just that L.A. connected on a couple of buzzer beaters, which effectively gave them a break. You know, it it's wild how some of those end of quarter situations can have such a determining effect on the final score.
1: You said you said wild. It was taking every every ounce of me not to call this division what what so many have called it for several (laughs) years. And I'm not gonna but I am gonna point out you said the word and it it made my ears perk up. All right,
0: right. I'll put a quarter in the jar. Put
1: a quarter in the jar.
0: We should have a jar for that. Anytime someone refers to the Carolina Flyers by their previous location name, Ugh,
1: that's uh, been that's been frequent. Yeah, <laughs> a lot, lot of people are having trouble moving on from
0: that. Yeah, one. okay, so let's just wrap wrap up the rest of the scores. Uh, we kind of mentioned it. LA prevailed over Seattle, nineteen to eighteen. Uh, it was LA's first win of the season, so they get to one and two. Mm-hmm. LA still feels like, and they've talked about it, I think, a lot. Online and sort of publicly, they they want to keep being in the playoff discussion in the West. And while it felt like the the first two losses were expected at one and two, they're still right there. They could still kind of make some trouble for the teams at the top. Um,
1: yeah, there's room,
0: but they they need to prove that I think. Still, um, we mentioned before New York blowing out Toronto at home. They won thirty-one to seventeen. They improved to four and zero ryan osgar and ben yacht combined for like 1300 total yards i think Uh, ryan osgar did not have a turnover on the night ben yacht had his highest goal total of the game it just felt like new york was getting whatever they wanted um huge game for antoine davis too by the way yeah well he was two blocks did you see his throws in the second half he was just putting up 50-50 balls and he was hoping that him. Abbott or yeah. Brownlee would come down with it. It was great. I kind of liked it. And they it. worked.
1: Yeah, they were great.
0: Felt like I, he, there he, might have been a mystery box in there at some point. Uh, <laughs> I, wanted to, I wanted to take a second to talk about Brownlee in particular because we keep kind of hitting that he's been evolving as a defender, but I think he's really asserting himself in that space. You know, they've they've kind of fully converted him into a handler defender. And once again, yeah, I, on I Saturday that. night yeah, he just
1: doing it more.
0: he was just all over Luke Camere on Toronto. It just it felt like Camiri had to keep moving because anytime he would settle, it just meant the length of Brownlee got to also settle around him, and it just made it impossible for Toronto to get their center handler the disc a lot. um it It feels like Brownlee's having a very significant effect on disrupting the initiating looks of what opponents want to do the past few weeks he did against Sadoke, i think uh, against boston the other week where he was pushing him upfield and out of the handler space um it just it feels like both the implementation of the strategy and utilizing brownlee is better and he's solidifying as one of the premier defenders on this top line new york defense having him as a handler defender is such a cool fit
1: and a cool tool for this defense to have i'm thinking specifically back to the sudok matchup sudok is a guy that is very comfortable cutting downfield and releasing from the backfield and striking deep but when you have brownley on you that kind of stops any chance you have of getting open deep like brownley is a phenomenal deep defender he's probably going to have the size advantage of you over you so when you have a guy that's Brownlee's size and has the quickness to keep up with these handlers. There's just so much he can do to to shut them down, even if they want to escape from the backfield. Like that's then it's like okay, now you're in Brownlee's wheelhouse, like where he maybe ideally wants to defend. So having that, and then also having Antoine Davis and Jeff Babbitt didn't play defense this past game. They were missing Jack Williams, so I think they had an opening on the O-line shifted Babbitt over but their their top line of defense with Brownlee featured as a handler defender I'm I'm just becoming an increasing fan of it also I love when Brownlee flashes some offensive burst too like that that initiating he, cut he had in the red zone where he just struck oh, yeah. to the front corner from the front of the stack loved that that was that was awesome to watch also came down with that disc he had no business of coming down with and like a, a dog pile in the end zone he's he just continues to impress
0: so I gotta give a quick shout out to New York's co-head coach Charlie Hoppus uh he hit me up because I think he knows I've been riding the the Brownlee bandwagon of late he gave me some pretty interesting numbers in the past three games that um Brownlee's been collecting against Sean Mott in Philadelphia Ben and Boston and then Luke Camire the Ostensibly, the the main offensive pieces for each of their respective teams. Uh, Against Sean Mott, Mott had two assists, one goal. Uh, He was plus zero on the game, meaning he was like, you know, not not contributing really to the O line. He had an eighty three percent completion rating. He had two hundred and sixty four total yards, which is the third fewest he's had in the past two seasons for Philadelphia. Just an anemic output for a guy like Sean Mott, who can easily rack up five hundred total yards in a game um mm-hmm. against Sidok, Sidok had zero assists i didn't remember this from the boston new york <laughs> wow matchup, but Sidok had zero assists that. two goals one hockey assist he had a stall he was zero of zero on hucks so no ben Sidok hucks another big i think underlying stat column thing ben Sidok is always looking for orion cable or tanner johnson or now ray tetral deep um, and mm-hmm. to limit one of the premier throwers, and all AUDL player in 2021 to zero huck completions is really speaking. And then here's the real uh, underlying part 220 total yards for Suzok. Career low. You want to know what his previous low was?
1: Like 400? 400, yeah, 408.
0: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so Brownlee held basically probably the most consistent yardage getter, other than maybe Ryan Osgar the past two seasons. Uh, I guess. Pavel and Ben Yad are also up there but Sadoke is you know a yardage magnet it just feels like yeah. you could just chalk him up for 500 a game and so for Brownlee to hold him to 200 and zero assists and zero hucks making him only into receiver is just phenomenal so yeah you could for, see it
1: you could see yeah. it all game him shutting him down in the handler space and then defending him deep like that that's just taking away opportunities and that was huge in that win for New York.
0: Well, and, you know, maybe also a little bit silver lining for Boston. They still played pretty well offensively, you know, despite having their main handler taken away. Um, so that that could be a little bit of encouragement if they can figure out a way to free up Sadoke the next time they play.
1: And there was no Tanner Johnson that game, too. I think if Ta- Tanner Johnson's active, I think that creates a few more matchup issues for New York. So...
0: I know I know. Tanner Johnson makes highlights. I'm not trying to say that he doesn't, but he is one of the most boring players to watch because everything <laughs> just comes so easily. He's so smart yeah. in his reads. He knows when to take looks. He's, he's constantly getting Ds when they need him to by just sort of running in front of the disc faster than whoever he's covering. It's not like a layout. It's not even like diving. He just simply overtakes his opponent. And a lot of his skies feel that way, too, where he's just sort of like, no, I'm bigger in here first. And how he sort of plays even his distributor role. He just he uses his body and his size. And he's so mobile that he's just out positioning people everywhere on the field. So he just gets to where he wants to go. I'm so impressed by him. But at the same time, watching him sometimes it so it kind of puts me to sleep a little bit He's so not good. flashy
1: at all yeah no, no you're, well you're right.
0: he can be he can be though because i i think back to his we've, actual... well we've seen
1: him we've seen him be flashy in the past but I, yeah i don't know i think he's maybe playing at his best when he doesn't need to be right when everything is just coming so easily to him in that offense
0: okay you know who is playing flashy and shouldn't be given that he's almost an aarp range but is becoming one of the premier facets of this Boston offense Jeff Graham. <laughs> talking Jeff Graham, Jeff, the Graham immortal Jeff Graham, with
1: so much flair I love it
0: he I think he has a highlight sky in all three of the games he's played so far he didn't play in the team's road trip up to Canada but he had like a layout block for them to get the disc back against uh Toronto in the first half he skied somebody he continues to be a pacer in their offense where he's just constantly lurking and getting open for continuation throws from an increasingly broad stable of throwers in the Glories offense with the mm-hmm. development of Cole Davis brand and everything like it. It's really nice for them to have Jeff Graham. He might not be the top line star that we always talk about or the featured piece that is why they're succeeding, but he's, he's kind of becoming the rug that ties the room together where He's making plays at times and doing things that they just need. He's a, a churner and a grinder. Like, he is moving
1: so much in that offense, even if he's not getting the disc. Just Again, we're, staying active is. We're know, talking it it about makes him. everything easier for the rest of his teammates.
0: He's 41 and a half years old, and we're talking about him being the pace setter and the churner for their offense. Yeah. He, he <laughs> plays, like, he looks so athletic no, I, whenever he's I'm out I'm not there. agreeing he's... with you. I'm just i I'm yeah. in shock, you know? Oh, it's cool. He feels, you know, that, again, like a little bit of a wild comparison. He feels like a Matt Smith piece for their offense, where it's this veteran guy who shows up in the biggest moments when you need them to, and he's just going to make plays. Like, that's what Jeff Graham does. He's Sky Jack Williams. I can't even think of the last time somebody just sky jack williams in the open field jack williams last year by skying out packs of field. you know like yeah it's it's been great
1: I, i think the boston boston offense i'm still i i think i still think there's so much potential there i just i i don't know it's something about its consistency and maybe it's just the personnel they bring to each game but it feels like they could be a top offense in this division when they're fully healthy and everyone's on the field.
0: They were number two in scoring last year, and I think that they're getting there. I mean, they put up 25 in week one. I just, you know, they've got to do it against DC and New York. That's that's right. their litmus test at this point. I think we know that Boston can hang with the other teams despite, you know, going 0-2 on that road trip a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think we know that Boston can play with any of the other teams in this division. Although I do agree that the Boston Philly rematch is going to be a really yeah. sweet one in a couple. weeks. I'm
1: excited. Are, are you right now? Are you favoring Boston for the three spot in the East or do you even favor Philly at this point?
0: <sighs> I don't know. Ask. I think it's still such a toss up with the records and the schedules and everything. It I still think it's wide open. Just given the sort of, all variable equation you have to factor in Montreal being three and two and having wins over, I guess Philadelphia now, well, let's put it aside. They have wins over Boston and Philadelphia already. And I just think that that gives them the inside track right now. But if Royale continue to backpedal out of that three and oh start, I I definitely think Boston and Philly have the talent to take the three seed.
1: Yeah. I also think when I when I think of these teams, I think of Boston as having the best shot to take down New York or D.C. Like we saw what D.C. did to Montreal. I feel like they can do that to any team besides New York in this division. But Boston, Boston, at least I feel like there is some hope if they put together a perfect game to take down New York or D.C. But of course, you got to remember that Philly only lost to New York by a couple goals They've historically played them close for whatever reason. And, yeah, you can't really count them out at this point. This feels like a a much better Philly team than it did last year also.
0: And then just finally from week four, Portland uh, edging out Oakland 26 to 22. It was a close game throughout. Spiders continuing to they battled edge into the nitro but i don't think that they ever had a lead after the first quarter when their teams are just kind of trading early it it felt like it was always the nitro's game to lose and they kind of confirmed that at the end as they pulled away uh leandro marks again just putting up a gaudy stat line of over 300 yards (laughs) receiving 13 total scores he now leads the league in total scores through the first four weeks of the season despite playing in only three games where some other teams have had played five games uh, he looks like an MVP level player for them. He had one sequence that I frankly haven't seen from a player and Tom Doy kind of hints on it in a quote he has in this week's Tuesday toss about Mark's being sort of this uh, puppy dog with endless energy when he's running around on the field. <laughs> Oakland had a chance to punch in a break and oh, it was off of a Mark's drop. Mark's flubbed an open field goal And so Oakland was driving back for a break score and they were about to throw it into the end zone and Mark's like from a warp dimension just comes blitzing up the sideline and gets this speeding block. Uh, Portland picks up and then in like two throws gets the disc downfield and it's Mark's again, beating everyone else downfield to catch the goal and sort of, Ah, uh, rectify his drop from a couple moments earlier. It was just it's one of those hustle plays that frankly you don't see a lot of star level players making like that. It's it it felt like one of those plays that like a guy earning his roster spot makes, not a <laughs> yeah, yeah. guy who's pacing everyone scoring and scoring in yardage. <laughs> right. He's yeah, just he's... I think also
1: the fact that his the D wasn't even his momentum wasn't taking him towards the backfield. It was, it was an upline cut. So, yeah, for him to then get on his horse and change direction completely to get it at the other end. Cuz you know, a lot of those like run through Ds that happen, they've got all their momentum oh, going. Yeah. It's it's hard for an offense to stop that transitioning. But no, this was just Marks out hustling everyone.
0: No, he was tumbling out of bounds and then he got up and ran end yeah. to end 80 yards. <laughs> <laughs> like it's just it it it's indicative of how this Nitro team is playing, where they're still loose. They're still probably the most expansion-looking team as far as how they play. They're, mm-hmm. you know, they love the huck, as you tweeted out. They've completed ten plus hucks in each of their games so far. They're the only team averaging ten huck completions a game so far in twenty twenty two. Love the long ball, um, but they are prone to weird mistakes. And Oakland was able to, I think, very adeptly exploit those um mm-hmm. i'm interested to see this oakland team get a non san Diego, non-portland test i think that they're going to be pretty interesting against the traditional west teams
1: yeah they also didn't have justin norton this game so they weren't even at full strength and they really did a good job hanging in for most of that game it almost felt like maybe not quite like how austin felt with carolina and atlanta but while, while Portland never felt like they would totally surrender the lead, Oakland wasn't really going anywhere. Like, I think I I would have thought that Portland could have run away with this game, but Oakland gets a ton of credit for hanging in. And Landro Marks, by the way, I was totally off on my <laughs> prediction of his scoring total because, yeah, he's he's just everything for this Portland team. He He's their offense. Everything is going to continue to run through him. I don't even think it matters if, hatchet or hayes are active i mean yeah that's two other guys that could be on the throwing or receiving end of a lot of this offensive production but it really is the leandro marks show in portland
0: i mean there there is one other big firework in the sky right now for them uh oh it's it's daniel lee daniel lee i need to shout out you know i submitted my fan club application a couple weeks ago i'm waiting to hear the return in the mail I think I'm going to be accepted. I hope I'm accepted. Um, will out of his GD mind. Uh, he doesn't have a turnover through three games. And if you look at his stat line, it's one of the most balanced in the league. He leads the team in blocks despite being arguably its second best offensive player so far behind marks. Um, he can throw the disc. He's most adept in space making athletic plays. He had another Sky this week. Over two Oakland players, where they oh, completely no had him out of position, and he just sort of pure pirou- half pirouetted in the air and like contorted his left hand over them, and then just got the disc out. Like his hands are so strong. That's one of the things I've really noticed. He's got such good hands. I don't know if it's the gloves. He's so
1: he's so good in the air, and then I compare him to a guy like Greg Martin, and they have such different styles to their their air game you know martin is just like i'm gonna out jump everyone but i don't know there's some there's some kind of flair to daniel lee's skying ability and the fact he can just kind of reach over people even if he's slightly out of position or if they have him sandwiched in the case of this one both guys super fun to watch he has been so good on both ends just constantly dominating
0: his opponents in the air yeah, Portland continues to just be a delight to watch, I think. Um, but
1: they're fun. That'll d-
0: huh? They're fun.
1: I they might be. Uh, I don't know if I would say they're the most fun expansion team to watch at this point. But I was going to say offensively
0: after Salt Lake's home opener. I don't think you can really give any other team the, the watchability ranking ahead of them <laughs> right now.
1: <laughs> I know. I know. It's tough. They're but just they're both so much
0: fun. Uh, But that'll do it for the week four recap episode of Swing Pass. We will be back here again on Thursday previewing week five matchups. You will definitely not want to miss that episode. There are some ridiculously large matchups coming up in the AUDL in week five as we head into Memorial Day. Um, We hope you tune in. If you could, give us a five-star review on whatever listening platform you're listening to this on. And again, as always, thank you for tuning in. We really really appreciate getting the opportunity to do this i know i speak for myself and i hope for daniel too where i just say i am continually humbled by the people who reach out and engage us on this stuff it's really fun to talk about ultimate that's why we started doing this um so please continue to do that uh and yeah can't wait to talk again on thursday see you all then